Fade Out, the podcast that examines the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. This week, our subject is actor, writer, director, playwright, and songwriter Sam Shepard. Over the course of a 50-year career, Shepard appeared in films such as The Right Stuff, Francis, Days of Heaven, Midnight Special, Steel Magnolias, The Pelican Brief, and relevant to another one of my interests, had an appearance in Bob Dylan's single effort as director, 1978's Ronaldo and Clara, and later even co-writing a song with Dylan, the cinematic epic Brownsville Girl. Shepard passed away in 2017 at the age of 73, his final film being the mystery thriller Never Here, starring Mirai Enos and Goran Viznik. To discuss Never Here, I am honored to have with me the film's director and writer, Camille Toman, and his producer, Corey Musa. Hello to both of you, and welcome to Fade Out. Oh, happy Hi. to be here. <laughs> I, I said off air that uh, other than the one time I got to talk to Richard Donner, something I never tire of mentioning, uh, I never get to talk to the actual filmmakers of the movies that I am discussing. So this is just such a huge thrill that I'm going to get to talk to, about this movie with the two of you. It's just so exciting for me. Well, it's exciting for us to be here. It's exciting for me. I don't know about Corey. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very exciting for me to be here, Rob. As a, a longtime fan of Rob Kelly, I'm honored <laughs> to be here. Those, those words don't make any sense, put in that order. But okay. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, anyway, as I said, we're here to talk about Sam Shepard. The film is never here. It was released in October of 2017. I'm going to give a brief rundown of the plot. Uh, there won't be any spoilers in this plot synopsis, but I will warn you, for those of you out there that want to see this film... Uh, by the way, it's, a, it's available for rental across different streaming platforms. Uh, you should check it out. We will be sure spoiling parts of it as we go through this, but at least in the plot, I'll be, uh, I'll be sticking to non-spoilers here. So Mireille Enos plays Miranda, a successful artist living in New York. Miranda specializes in a combination of performance art and taking random things she finds, like a stranger's cell phone, for instance, and turning it into art. The night after she has a big exhibition where she learns that the unwitting subject of one of her installations is none too happy about the way his personal items are being used, her art dealer and lover Paul, Sam Shepard, happens to see a violent act take place on the street outside her apartment window. Since Paul is married with a sick, invalid wife, he doesn't want to call the police and report it. Miranda decides to make the call herself and pretend that she was the one who saw the crime based on Paul's description of the people involved. Things get complicated when Miranda learns that the detective on the case is an old flame of hers, a man named Andy. While Andy clearly still has feelings for Miranda, his suspicion about the veracity of her story rises, and it becomes even more murky when it appears that Miranda knows both the people involved in the crime. She eventually becomes obsessed with the man she picked out of a police lineup, going so far as to follow him around the city and even into his apartment. But it appears that someone is following her, too. Is Miranda truly in danger, or she's just losing her grip on reality? The cast of this film, as I mentioned, is Mirai Enos as Miranda, Sam Shepard as Paul Stark, Gordon Viznik as S, Vincent Piazza as Andy, Nina Arandia as Margaret, Anna Nuguera as Karen, and David Greenspan as Arthur Anderton. So, okay, Camille, let's start with you. How was my synopsis? I wrote that myself. Was that a decent synopsis of the plot? Well, it was good. It was good. I, I would add, piggyback onto your synopsis, that she begins to make a piece of once she once this event happens outside her window and she calls the police momentarily in an act of you know civic conscience she then starts to make a piece of art about this 
And that's what that's it's really the her peace and the the madness, the potential of her, you know, insanity. And um, the, it's the it's the piece of art for me that kind of brings it all together. Gotcha. So so let's start at the very beginning. Like, how did all this come about? How does one start to write a movie and decide they're going to direct it? And, and, and how does Corey get in and you start becoming an actual movie? Um. Well, I've been um, inspired, you know, I've always wanted to direct movies ever since I was like six, I guess, six, seven. I have memories of like, that was like my childhood thing to, I would be make plays, direct plays with my friends. And <laughs> uh, and then when they, my friends got too old, it was my sister, my, my little sister and her friends. And so it's like, it's always been a thing that I've been, been doing and previous to um, Never Here, I had done a uh, documentary and like five or six short films. So, um, I had written the screenplay and this was like 2010, I believe. And I was introduced to Neil Dodson, who Corey was working with and Neil and Corey and Zachary Quinto. And I began to work together and it took us about eight years from that point to actually get the film into made and and into production. Believe it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. No kidding, Rob. It's like, uh, these things are not simple. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I've heard you say before, like anybody who can get a movie made, it's you know, it's a miracle, and that's yeah. that's something we say in in Hollywood. And um, this was a labor of love and something that Camille wanted so badly, and just made happen. She brought it into the world um, out of devotion, dedication, passion. That's what filmmaking really takes. Yeah, and I had a really passionate, amazing team the whole, the whole, the whole journey through. I mean, I look back on it and I just, I'm astounded by the amount of uh, hard work and determination and passion that went into it from like a big group of us, really. It's amazing. What was the impetus to, I mean, did did you want to write, how did you start the screenplay process? Did you like, I want to write a thriller or you had something that you wanted to do in the art world? Were you familiar with that world? Yes. I I actually was a performance artist in my twenties. So some of the pieces that she makes in the movie are actually pieces I stole for myself. <laughs> but actually, I, um, I'm in love with the idea of a thriller as an excellent vehicle to communicate, you know, deeper, thi- quote unquote, deeper things to an audience. Because the, the way I see it, the filmmaking is really about reflecting, um, ultimately reflecting an audience's experience of life back at them on some level. It's not just about entertaining, but when you have a vehicle like a thriller or a horror film, you can use the titillation of a horror film to communicate things that um, may be less about the plot and more about the audience's own life, basically, or or the kind of human experience. So I, I knew I wanted to make a thriller, and um, I had read Paul Auster's New York Trilogy when I was like 20. Have you ever read that book, Rob? I have not. Um, so it's basically detective fiction on one level, but it's also really, it's similar to what I'm saying. I was really aware at that age of like, wow, this author's reaching out at me. Like, it's almost like a, his hand like reached up <laughs> from the book and like grabbed my neck and he was talking to me. And yet he was still kind of in the genre of detective fiction at the same time. And I was really inspired that he was able to do that. And Paul Oster had had an affair with performance artist, Sophie Call, who in, in actuality, did something very like what Miranda does in the movie. Oh, really? Um, yes. And then he fictionalized Sophie Call in one of his other books um, and, and kind of and did, again, something very much like... So, so, so I was a very much a, a tribute to uh, 
Paul Oster on some level. And that's what got me started. All right. So, Corey, now when you got involved, I mean, what's again, for people who don't understand how this stuff works, and that's most people, like, how do you start the, the get the wheels spinning of producing a film? What, what's the next step once you have a screenplay and you're like, OK, we have a director attached and we have what's the next step? How does this how do you get the start moving this rock up the hill? Well, you know, it's an individual process for each project that you're going to work on. Um, in the case of this movie, it's like, you know, for the most part, it's something that everybody who's working on the project, the first thing that needs to happen is everybody who is on the core team of people. And, you know, in this case, we had a number of producers that were working on this together to try and, and help make this. The most important thing is we need to be on the same page first. What is the movie we're making? You know, do we all trust Camille? She's going to make the movie that we want to champion. No one's going to fight about that. There's not going to be any internal conflict about that because if that happens, you can't, you just can't move forward. And then the next part of the process is to put pieces together. And those pieces, it could be anything. It could be equity that's coming in first. It could be equity that you're searching for first with a very kind of blank slate. Um, it could be talent that you need to bring in first to attract the equity or to start build building some kind of package. So we started working on this. Camille started working on this with me in, I think, 2012. But she had been working on this before that still for a few years, I think, a couple of years. A couple of years, yeah. With Neil, more with Neil as the godfather. So the Corey's company, Neil, um, Zach, and and Corey were in, we had a company at that point called Before the Door. And this was another way we got access to talent is they just, they had just come off Margin Call, which is this big, you know, I guess 2011, Corey, right? Yeah. 2011, a hit. And they, and they were like, look, we don't have time at that point before Corey came on board full time. Um, they were like, we don't really have time to be your like full time producers, but we'll be your godfather. And we'll, 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 we'll basically give you a channel to talent. Cause I was a first time filmmaker. I didn't, I couldn't just call up actors. Right. <laughs> so, um, so for a couple of years before Corey even got involved, we were pitching this to, you know, we were trying, we were trying to get it to big name talent through um, Zach Quinto and Neil Dodson. And, um, and then when Corey, Corey came, um, Corey came, uh, came along in 2012 and be, be, he became our, like one of our full-time producers. Um, I believe I was actually in the middle, I was shooting in New Mexico, uh, this horror movie that I made called Banshee Chapter. And Neil and Zach had called me up when I had five minutes to like talk yep. on the phone at one point. <laughs> yep. And he literally just said to me, like, we're working on this project. Um, it had a different title at the time. It was called You Were Never Here. And uh, they said, you know, it's You Were Never Here. Uh, we want to produce it. And they said, you need to read this, uh, you know, in the next 12 hours and approve it for us. And I remember just being like... Are, are, are you not going to do it if I say no right now? <laughs> uh, I think I actually said that to Neil and he said, no, <laughs> um, or yeah, we're going to do it if you say no. And I was like, yeah, so just do it. It's fine. I like, I was so busy doing something else. Um, so it was really later that I even think I read the screenplay, which really connected with me though, when I read it. Um, and I was really excited about that because we hadn't done, um, we hadn't done really a thriller yet. And then on top of it, you know, there are hints of 
I could talk about you, Camille. I could, I could say nice things like, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of, of David Lynch. I'm a huge fan of Alfred Hitchcock. There are hints of all of these things in, in the screenplay that you're reading. Um, and then Camille is the real deal when you meet her, when you talk to her, um, when she's explaining what her art is and how it affects her and what she's written and why she's written it. It's, <laughs> it's not bullshit. And, you know, <laughs> There, uh, pardon me for swearing. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of that in the industry, and you know, and it's hard to sort through it. And this was actual talent, so it was fun. And then we began this very long journey of trying to put the pieces together. Um, Before we start talking about the package, I, I do want to ask. I'm going to assume, and maybe I'm wrong, that the you said the original title was uh, "You Were Never Here." Uh, I'm going to assume that right. <laughs> assuming is because you didn't want to you shortened it because there's the Joaquin Phoenix film you exactly. were never really here okay Lynn I figured Ramsey stole our title <laughs> okay I figured <laughs> yeah when I when I because I I noticed it uh, I mean I watch films till the final frame I don't I watch things till the to the copyright titles at the very end and I noticed wow. that even says copyright you were never here wow the LLC that's I thought well, that's, that's not the name that of the movie impressive. okay <laughs> Yeah, I know. Oh, it's not that's our that's secret incredible. Tag at the end of the movie. <laughs> so. That's amazing. Yeah, but you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why. That's why we were gonna. It was the films were gonna come out very close together, and you know, that didn't make much sense for us right. gotcha. to be to have the same title as the Joaquin Lynn Ramsey Rock, right. Joaquin Phoenix. Um, All right, well, well, yeah, no, well, there's another interesting thing about titles and how they work when you get to the point of working with your distributor and you know this was also a note from our distributor which is ah, this is so silly but it's like when they're looking at your titles in things um they want alphabetically for your titles to be up higher to (laughs) a b or c in the the yellow pages or something it's Uh, true uh, it's, I mean, it's changing now with how the on-demand services work, but like, mm-hmm. you know, just as little as five years ago with the VOD that you would watch through your cable provider, it's like, it was listed alphabetically. So mm-hmm. things with numbers would be the very first. And then, you know, ABC, I could, I could say that these, the names of my movies, you know, all is lost, aardvark, um, <laughs> banshee chapter, uh, we, 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 the, that helps. So, you know, <laughs> never, never here was closer. Uh, the N was closer to A than the Y was. <laughs> Are you here, perhaps? <laughs> we we should have had you on the team, Rob. That would have been good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, right. well, speaking of the team, I mean, how did you start assembling uh, this cast? You've got Mirai Enos, as I mentioned, Sam Shepard, Gorn Visnik. How did you start uh, getting these people together? And, of course, mainly we were to talk about, like, how did you get Sam, Sam Shepard involved? Well, Mireille was involved very, Mireille and I had done um, a short film together in 2006. So I knew her personally. And, um, and actually I had, I'm going to, this is going to, this is tangential, but I'm just going to tell a quick story. You can edit it out later, Rob, if you, if you don't think it goes with, with your podcast. <laughs> um, she, uh, cause you, you were, uh, I think interested in like how we cast and she, when I first, um, I had had this short film in 2006 and uh, I was looking for the lead and Mireille literally walked across my field of vision in on like 59th street in New York city. And I just was like, and we, and I'd actually taken an acting class with her years before. So I knew her a little bit, but I was like, Oh, that's her. 
that's the woman. And then I just started pursuing her and I had this, she had this like light around her almost. I was like, that's the woman who's going to be in my short film. And the reason I bring this up is because in 2012, when Corey was um, in Nevada, like you said, shooting, shooting the Banshee chapter, Neil and Zach were, had mentioned him a few times. Oh, like, you know, the, the third, the third, our third partner, Corey. And I was like, I know Corey is going to produce this movie. And I said to him, well, Cor- I think Corey is going to produce the movie. And are you, you know, this story, Corey? I, I do know this story. <laughs> and um, I was like, I, I, and, and they were like, no, he can't. Cause he's, you know, cause at that point we didn't know it was going to take eight years to get made. Uh, so they were like, no, he can't. Cause he got these, he got, he's got this, this, these two projects back to back. And I was like, that's so weird because I just know Corey Musa. Then I hadn't even met Corey. I just like, it was the name. I was like, that man is going to produce our movie. <laughs> and, uh, and lo and behold, he did. So, um, Back yes. to, so, so back, that's, that's my tangent. Um, but so Mireille had been involved from the, from the, I wrote the part for Mireille, uh, cause I think she's such an extraordinary actor, but at the time she was doing the killing again, you know, many years before she was doing the killing. She, she couldn't sign on to be Miranda. I actually named Miranda after Mireille, um, because of her other, um, other stuff she was doing but she signed on to be margaret the um journalist so we had we had that attachment early on and then we went through like many um potential like stars and starlets and we had one household name signed up for a while we had one like much larger incarnation of the film that almost got made yeah um and then fell apart at the last minute we got that Um, that was in two that we made that first offer to that person and uh, 2013 on, on August 30th, 2013. That's amazing. Great. Wow. wow. No. And, and it's like, I could tell you, uh, Mireille came back around to the project, Rob, and, and was able to start in, in, as the lead because just schedules changed and the type of movie it was. But there was this other version of the movie that we were going to do for a while that had this other actress in it. And we had started working with um, this this other production company that was going to help finance the film um, called Asylum Pictures. And they are known for uh, such films as Sharknado. Yeah, yeah. Some, some other really good ones. And it was like this really <laughs> weird experience all of a sudden where we're meeting with them in their office space in um, in Los Angeles, which was this really fun, weird office space that was just massive because they write produce and edit all of their movies um you know all in the same place and they wanted to do like a serious film they were like we want to do like an asylum black label film Mm -hmm. and we would like to have like one one serious movie we do a year and hypothetically you know we can move forward and, and improve our reputation for the kind of films that we make with this label and so it was this kind of experiment that we were all really excited about doing. And then when we lost this actress that had signed on, it's just kind of that version. The last minute. Yeah, the last minute. We were set to start shooting. It was like in pre-production and, and we lost our talent and uh, it was a little dramatic. And, <laughs> and that mm-hmm. we, we, were, we were down for what, a year, a year and a half? No, no, it was actually like a week. That's the, that's the incredible thing because... You know, we actually, we ha- we still had the, fi- Asylum had been like, hey, the financing's in, you just have to replace this actress with another, you know, actress at her level. And there aren't that many in Hollywood, actually, there's only like 10. 
So we went, we spent like three months, like going through all these larger actresses, but I personally always, I mean, not larger in name as you know, at that time. And I personally always really secretly wanted Marie to play her. It was only, there, there was this really dramatic um, conversation that Corey and the other producers, like everybody got on the phone with me and they were like, Camille, you know, like, we love you. have been working on this for like five years. Like, it's not you. We just can't keep doing this. Like they're just, we just, we can't do it. And it was like, I remember like crying silently on the phone and, um, getting off the phone and being like, Oh my God, this is a disaster. And then like a couple days later, I just like put it together. Like, okay. They, Cause we only had a little bit of money left. And I was like, they say it can't be done for this amount of money, but like, have we really thought about it? And then I called Mireille up and I was like, Mireille, like, do you want to just like sign on as the lead? And like, maybe we can do it for less money. And she was like, sure. And then I called Corey and the other producers up like a week later. And I was like, Hey, Marie's in as the lead. And they were all like, Oh, great. Okay. We're back in. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> it was only like, it was only like 10 days that we were actually down for, believe it or not, Corey. No, we would, we went down for a year, Camille, after <laughs> that incident. And I went to Pittsburgh and shot two movies and then came back (laughs) i remember when you were in pittsburgh that's when we were going through all the actresses that's when it was like we just started throwing darts at a wall and for a while it was like i was like oh my god i was like oh we were giving we were we were going out to actresses it was like oh don't know if that one's the right actress but she has the right like name that's what i remember yeah we did (laughs) went from the end of the year from 2013 into the beginning of 2014 when we went with the version with Mireille. Yeah. I mean, I went through my emails this morning and made a bunch of notes. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe it wasn't 10 days. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe it was months. (laughs) So (laughs) it could be. Uh, what point? Filmmaking, you just you just can't see things anymore. Your brain, brain gets or, or just just bad just bad memory. I mean, you know, I, to me it seems like ten days, but you know, like you know, we 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 remember things. That, you know, it's it, I, you could be right, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> so so, how does Sam Shepard come into all this? So once we were back up and running, we 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 couldn't we we hadn't um, found a Paul yet who's. Paul, the um, Sam Shepard's character, and ICM got involved, and they w- they were like really championing the project. And um, Sam's agent really liked the script and was like, you know, Sam doesn't say yes like to a lot of things, so don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to send it to him. And then, like lo and behold, this is like a month before we started production, right, Corey? Is that right? Yeah, it was right it was- before. Right before, yeah, really, it was like really close, and uh, we we um and then lo and behold, he he uh, he he responded, and yeah, then he took the movie, which was amazing to all of us. I remember we were like all jumping up and down, and we had all of us had a fit. I mean, that's something about him I always thought was interesting because I you know, I grew up in the late seventies and eighties, and he was so ridiculously handsome, you know, like really a classic oh leading God. man. And I almost got the sense that other than like in the right stuff or maybe one or two other movies, he really did not do the kind of stuff that I imagine Hollywood would have wanted him to do. You know, I could imagine Hollywood would have probably major series would have wanted to plug him in to every kind of action leading man, romantic comedy kind of thing, romantic drama. And he just, he just wasn't that guy. He seemed to delight in, in working with, 
uh, very, very sort of interesting directors. You did, you know, Terrence Malick and Days of Heaven and stuff like that. And when I see that he's in a movie at any point, I'm like, well, he must have, there must have been something really interesting to him about it because he just seems like he's got other things on his mind. He's off, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. he's off writing plays. He's off totally. starring in plays. He's off writing songs with Bob Dylan from Pete Six. This books, is books, he's yeah. writing books. He's got a million other things to do. So yeah. if he's in this movie, there must have been something that really appealed to him. So, it, you know, when, when it first came up, I was like, wow, that's interesting that you've got Sam Shepard to be in this movie. So were you intimidated or the thought that you were going to, this is your first film as a, your first uh, dramatic film and you're going to be directing someone with this level of experience behind them? I was, I, well, first of all, I was thrilled. I think we were all so thrilled. That was the first thing. Just like, Oh my God. Like, yes. I like, like, I like you guys in the office. <laughs> yeah. Hearing from yeah. when we found out we were so happy. Yeah. We were so happy because we all grew up reading his plays. I mean, you know, he's to me, he's really the seminal playwright of the century, really. And, um, you know, I just I I had so much I had and have so much respect for him as a playwright, as a thinker and as an actor. It was Mm -hmm. incredible that he was saying yes. It's where Camille and uh, myself and my other partners, old partners, Zach and Neil, like really all just connected. We all have a, you know, big theater background and Sam Shepard is like the Mm -hmm. quintessential, like American playwright, the great American playwright of Mm -hmm. our generation. And it, it was just so cool to get to actually work with this person who you had read and studied his literatures. Yeah plays for years and years and I'd performed them and you know Zach has been in these plays too like we love these plays um, everybody does mm-hmm. and and now you have this he's like a legend and he wants to be in our little movie <laughs> it was awesome what a mm-hmm. great feeling of satisfaction to have such an extraordinary person come and validate the film with us, you know? What yeah, was it like to totally. direct him? I mean, what was it like actually working with him on the set at any given day? Um, uh, he was an v- extraordinary person. Um, he has, just what you said, Rob, that he um, has this, he beats, he, he marches to the beat of his own drum. So he's got this, um, like, electric quality to him. Like, you can almost how do I explain it? Like he's very unpredictable, you know, like you never quite know what's come going to, what's going to come out of him at any time. He's got, he kind of is one of those people. If, if this means anything, if metaphor means anything to you, like he brings the outdoors inside with him. <laughs> okay. You know what I'm talking about? Like those people who just feel like the outdoors. I always felt like he was like this, like unbridled stallion of a person. <laughs> um, so he was, he was great to direct. And, and to answer your question, if I was intimidated, yeah, I was, uh, especially like what I originally thought, like, gosh, what is he, he right before he took the part, he, he it was like, oh, Sam Shepard wants to talk to you. So it was like, okay. Um, and I was like, what's he, what am I going to say? Like, if he wants to change my writing, like it's Sam Shepard, like, what, <laughs> what am I gonna, what am I, it's not, it's not like it's, you know, it's not like, it's not, not even like it's a, it's an actor that I really respect. It's like an actor I really respect. And it's Sam Shepard, the playwright. So I was like, what, you know, how am I gonna, what's, what's he gonna say? And like, we got on the phone, I was like, my heart was beating. And um, he was like, all right, well, listen, I have some thoughts. And I was like, okay, okay. All right. All right. Well, because I really, truly didn't know how I was 
what, what, how, you know, maybe he was, he was going to say something that I had to go with. He was going to make some huge change. And, you know, like I, I really hadn't landed myself and how, what I, how I was going to respond. Um, he was like, 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 listen on uh, page 88, you know, I think the character should, should have a sketch pad. And I was like, <laughs> okay, great. And then he was like, he was like, and listen here on page 90, you know, I think uh, glasses, I think I see, I see glasses, you know, like reading glasses. I was like, yeah, reading glasses. He was like, and I think there should be somebody in the room with him, maybe a nurse. I was like, Fab, yeah, definitely. He was like, all right, great. Well, well, I think I'm going to do this movie. <laughs> so then, <laughs> wow. I was just like, oh my God. Um, so it was intimidating. And it was, what was really interesting too, is that um, generally I really am a big believer of like actors just taking lines and kind of making them their own which is something that Sam likes to do, likes, likes to do, at least on never here, he would make, he would kind of do a version of the line, which, which works a lot of the time, in my opinion, better than the actual line. Um, when an actor kind of filters the line through their own body and does a version of it, but there is so much subtext in the, um, dialogue and never here that sometimes a line has to be said exactly the way it's written when it's a line that has like multiple meanings. And so there was a few times when it was like, he would say a line his way, and I'd be like, okay, and just say it like it's written. <laughs> and then he'd say it his way. I'd be like, okay, say it like it's written. And then there would be like a, uh, a you like that 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 power dynamic, like it's Sam Shepard, hmm. um, would would come up. Um, but generally, that the, the few times that did come up when I did insist, you know, this this line has to be said exactly like it's written. He he was. Um, ultimately very respectful. So yeah, he was, he was a fabulous person to have on set in every, in every way. There's a couple of bits of business I noticed in the movie. Uh, I, I watched the movie a couple of times and I, I noticed things as, of course, as I pick up, pick up on them, as I go through the second or third time. And so I always wonder like, is this bits of business in the screenplay or is this something that the actor brings to it? And the one, two couple I wanted to ask you about one is, uh, after the, uh, we see that, uh, Paul and, and Miranda had sex right after the, um, the, the, big opening night, uh, right after they're done, he reaches for his phone, like immediately afterwards. And it's really mm-hmm. kind of tacky because it's like, mm-hmm. you know, he's got, you know, it's like, good Lord. He waited about three and a half seconds before he immediately mm-hmm. reached for his phone. And to me, it's like, that's, I, am I assuming right that that's in the screenplay? Cause to me, that says something about their relationship. And about that character that he would sort of do that that quickly, that he would just sort of like, all right, well, we're done here. Now I'm going to go grab my phone and check my message. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, was, that was, was in there. That was in the screenplay? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. And then the other one that I was fascinated because I know that actors love to have kind of bits of business and love to maybe have something to do with their hands. The scene where uh, they discover that the installation has been vandalized and uh, he comes in and he's, he's eating a sandwich. And there's no, I can't, I couldn't figure out the justification for that other than I felt like that was something that he added that he just wanted to be doing something with his hands. Is that right? I don't remember. I, I feel I, like that. I, I remember this day. I, I, I remember that sandwich coming. Out. I do too. And it was like so many, we had so many of those goddamn sandwiches and he was sick by the end of that sandwich. But I don't remember. Do you, would you he remember, Corey? Hungry. He was hungry. He wanted a sandwich. Like... He asked for a sandwich, and then when we brought him a sandwich, he wanted a different kind, like a simpler sandwich to eat. He, like, came up with, like, the kind of two pieces of bread sandwich instead of it being, like, a, a deli sandwich. 
That's what I remember. Probably because he was sick of eating the sandwich. Because we had a lot of takes. I right. like to do. I, I like to do, do takes. Um, it's a little out of fashion now to do a bunch of takes, but I'm a big fan of doing takes. And so he had to eat that sandwich and eat that sandwich. That's what I remember. I don't. Right. I. I think I don't. It wasn't definitely not in the screenplay. I think I don't remember. Rob. That's okay. My, that's my, that's my <laughs> it short, just jumped out of me. Short answer. It, okay. It just. It. I remembered. It just. It made me chuckle when I because every time you're cutting back to him, he's like, yup, yeah, yup, yeah, and he's like chewing while he's eating. And I thought that just. I, think, I was just trying to imagine why I'm, that would be in the screenplay. I thought, I I'm think pretty like sure the sandwich came from me. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it more, because I wanted him to have that like. I don't really care that much. Like, okay. yeah, I'm here. I'm doing my job, but I don't really care that much. Kind of a little bit of like he's, he's, but I, what definitely came from Sam was his sketchbook. That character has a sketchbook that right. he sketches in a lot. And that, that actually is one of the things he said to me on the phone is I, I think he's a frustrated artist and I, you know, I, he's mm-hmm. got to have a sketchbook and I know, and that sketchbook and he, and, and actually I, I believe there's a close up of what he's sketching and that is actual Sam's, that's Sam's. Oh, wow. Okay. Doodling. Yeah. Yeah. And he was also, he thought a lot about the costume. The costume was really big for him, how the character dressed and how Sam felt in his clothes and the shoes. Um, that stuff was very important from the beginning. It was like, Really super, super, super important for him. Man, speaking of shoes, man, those shoes that uh, Miranda wears throughout the movie, those cl- cloggy things, those look so uncomfortable. Every time I see her climbing a flight of stairs, I was like, oh, that's just look like it would be pain to walk around New York in those things all day. It's Clogs and then Keds. In the end, she's in Keds. Right, right, right. But, but by the time that the shit really hits the fan, she's out of those clogs and she's in a pair of Keds. Right, right. <laughs> so, Corey, you mentioned being there on that day. I mean, I, again, I think people would love to understand, like, as once you're the producer, what is your role? Are you there on the set every day? Are you there occasionally? I mean, are you are you off, you know, play, helping uh, arrange things for two weeks later uh, as opposed to what's going on today? Where are you during this process? Yeah, um, I mean that for me, it's it's kind of different for every project I work on. But generally, my my way of uh, once the film goes into production, uh, I'm on set every day. I always have been. I love being there. It's the best. It's the the most fun you get to have in the entire process of you know development, making the film, and post production, and all of the things that happen. The actual act of making the film is just beautiful. So if you've done your job well as a producer, you could hypothetically just kind of sit back and be an observer, but that's never really what happens. And you know, on set. Um, my job, our job, there was a few producers on set for this, is to problem solve the problems that are happening fast. Um, So here's a great example. We got to talk about Camille on something that just needed producers' attention immediately that happened on this uh, movie. We had one of our main locations we were shooting at was this loft, which was Miranda's uh, apartment that she lived in. And uh, we spent probably 10 days shooting there. And there was total issues happening with the upstairs neighbors in the building where we had rented the space. And the upstairs neighbors, we, we had made an arrangement with the landlord of that building. And we had paid that landlord a fee and, you know, taken care of everything we were supposed to take care of with permits and what have you, but nonetheless, the neighbor who was on top of the loft was very angry that we were shooting and just 
demanded money. And we explained to them that we had made arrangements with the landlord and they needed to speak to the landlord and they didn't like that. And they just started making noise intentionally oh, from hammering non- music, vacuuming a hammer, like just banging a hammer on the floor. <laughs> and I remember I called the police and we got the police to come because we had every right to be doing what we were doing. And this person wouldn't answer their door while the police were knocking because they were making so much noise inside of their apartment to upset us that they couldn't actually hear the door being pounded on. And one of the police officers broke their door down. Oh, my uh, Lord. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it wasn't exactly intentional. It's just, you know, they needed to get this person's attention at this point. So, and then that was the end of that. And, you know, I think we came to a compromise with them and they kind of shut up, but we still kind of had to shoot around it at points. Um, Mm -hmm, For sure. So like, that's just, you know, that's what a day could look like for me as a producer. I could be dealing with something like that. I had a day where, on this movie, I wasn't on set at all because I was dealing with trying to get the neon signs that we had in the film shipped from Dallas to New York in a timely fashion. It was like a mistake we had with one of the neon signs, I think. And that just became my, my, my job that day. And like the point of the producer essentially is to protect the director on set from any kind of problem like this. Like, Unless it's a creative problem that directly needs Camille's attention, we don't want to bother her with logistical things. We don't bother her with scary things. We want her head to be focused on what she's doing. Um, So a lot of the time that becomes the job is simply trying to absorb any possible problem that somebody on the crew or otherwise might be trying to throw at the director. Mm. (laughs) Now, you mentioned New York. Uh, how much of this was shot in New York? I'm assuming that not a lot because it's just so expensive to shoot in New York. Uh, 90% was 85% was shot. Really? Wow. Yeah. But but it wasn't supposed, you weren't supposed to necessarily know it was New York. It was right. I noticed there's not a lot of New York iconography. It's not like they go to the, you know, the Statue of Liberty or stuff like that. But yeah. like, this is an interesting it's, conversation for us, but you recognized it. You as an East Coaster, you recognized it was New York. Uh, you recognized certain locations when you saw it. I'm just curious. Not so much locations as, you know what? I'm not even sure how I figured it. I mean, I think part of it was it was just felt like the art world to me immediately reads as New York, that this is Soho, Greenwich Village kind of thing. Uh, right. But it, it felt like New York. But like I said, you it was very purposely that they weren't near any neighborhoods that were distinctly New York for people that don't know it. So that's why I assume that maybe you didn't shoot a lot of there. Cause again, I always heard that shooting in New York is just prohibitively expensive, but that wasn't the case. Well, we shot in, I think we shot in like, like 15 different, like we shot in Sunnyside Queens. We shot in uh, Williamsburg. We shot in the lower West side. We shot in the upper East side. We shot in the upper West side. We shot, we shot in Los An- downtown Los Angeles. It was uh, it, Brooklyn. It's hard to shoot a movie in New York on a small budget, but it's possible. I've, I've done a few of them. And this was a movie that survived um, with calling in favors on certain yeah. locations. Yeah. Um, I grew up know, in New York, so it was helpful to have um, a location. May or may not have been Camille's like 
a home that she grew up in at one point. <laughs> yeah. One of our locations. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, you beg, borrow and steal when you're making a movie. So if ever you can find like a location in a city like New York, where you're going to get, you know, a deal or it's free or whatever it is, you, you try to figure out how it works, but we really got, I think everything that we were looking to get in this movie location wise, we were able to find throughout the city. You know, I, 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 the, the, the apartment that is, um, S's apartment in the movie, um, that was in Queens, right, Camille? Yeah, Sunnyside. Um, that apartment is so funny to me. I never was quite sure, like, what we saw in that location. Um, but then we art decorated it. Like, we just decorated the heck out of that space. And it, it just looked like a very different space than the apartment that we actually rented from a human being that was living in there. But- but, but having said that, every every location was like hand picked. Like the reason we shot in all these different locations, Rob, was so that it wouldn't feel like New York, mm-hmm. and you, right. it, it kind of had a kind of like a, a metropolis feel, and a little bit like the New York I grew up in, like in the '90s, kind of just this. Could it was it Chicago? Could it have been possibly downtown LA? Like was it New York? It was just this like American metropolis is what I was going for. So that there, each uh, neighborhood had a kind of a classicism to it um, that that was very, very much handpicked. I mean, it took forever to find all those locations. Like that yep. was one of the most yep. really just not not, not arduous because I loved it, but the most like specific uh, elements. Part of the part of the reason as well that I I was thinking that you were subbing another city in for New York is that there's there's parts of this movie where the streets are empty are just empty. And that gave it to me a very, you know, eerie feel to it and reminded me, uh, I mean, I think there's a, a definite some uh, similarities here to Roman Polanski's Repulsion, you know, where it's someone mm-hmm. living in this metropolis that's potentially going mad. Uh, mm-hmm. But I also know that blocking off New York from people walking on it is incredibly expensive and difficult. And that's why another reason I thought, oh, maybe this is Toronto or something, because it's like, how did they keep, how did they get a whole street where there's nobody around for long stretches of time? I mean, the final shot of the movie, you don't see anybody walking on the street. I'm like, how did they find a street in New York without anybody walking on it? And you shoot at four in the morning, Rob. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's the city that never sleeps, Corey. What are you talking about? I, mean, I remember when we set up a tripod to do that shot and just left it there. Um, it, uh, no, I mean, we did block it off, uh, when we would have to get shot. We did block it off. We actually blocked that off. Yep. Yeah. Okay. We, and okay. even, even on our tiny budget. You would have just, okay. you know, PA standing on the other end of the street, just, just asking people to just hold for a second or to walk around or whatever. And, and you're just, you're just trying to get the shot. And then the street goes back to having foot action on it after you, you know, you've secured it for two minutes and, and then you let it go. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's four o'clock in the morning, so there's only like five people there anyway. It's not like fifty people. <laughs> right. Right. Now, okay. Now, Corey, you mentioned uh, the neon signs, and that was something else that I wanted to bring up because there are in film neon signs that are, are are addressing the audience. I mean, this is where it starts with the arrow. Uh, the "You are here" is the giant neon sign behind her. I don't know how I don't know how Miranda sleeps with that sign behind her head. By the way, that's, that's a great question. That's yeah. an excellent wow. question. She has to just put one of those sleep masks on or something to block the light out. But probably not I, sleeping very well. Yeah, but I wanted to. That's yeah, the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to ask you about the, the, the visual flourishes. Like there's, there's parts of this movie where there's a literal red circle on the screen circling parts for you to look at. Now, what was your thought behind that of like, that as a, the film itself, you're stepping back 
and the film itself is becoming an exhibit about her life. Is that the idea? I hate, I feel sort of dumb asking, what does this mean? Because over on my pod Dylan show, I hate trying to define something down to where it only means one thing, but I can't help it because I have the writer director here. I mean, was that the idea that this is, we're stepping back as the audience and we are watching an exhibit, which is this woman's life, the way she does that to other people. Yeah, very much, Rob. And I, um, I appreciate, you know, that it's true that we, it's hard to isolate like, well, what does this mean? And at the same time, um, you know, if, um, words, images affect us and they do create meaning. And, um, I think we talked earlier, it could have been before, um, it could have been before you turn the, the, the recorder on, but there's the plot. And then there's also like what the film means for the audience. And they're, and they're not always exactly the same thing. And so what's happening in the plot obviously affects your experience as a spectator, but there's also the, the, what the camera is doing, the sound, the soundscape uh, it's creating also a, a channel of meaning between the spectator and what they're watching. So I always like to say with never here, it's a cross between a whodunit and a who am I. Mm-hmm. So like it, it is a whodunit on some level, but really when you look at like, well, what is it really exploring? It's, it's really exploring a fractured, uh, a fractured relationship to the, to oneself that I think a lot of humans um, at times experience. Yeah, so so the neon signs and the camera work and the soundscape um, are very much about exploration of ultimately where um, one can become fractured off from oneself. Okay. And although that's like that all sounds very intellectual, like you know, <laughs> using that like psycho like uh, that psychological language, like it my intention it was really it's actually like pretty like visceral and if you if for the people who responded to the movie who like watched it who like i guess who 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 who, who, to to whom the channel was open it's not it's not like intellectual at all it's actually a visceral felt sense of like oh yeah i can feel it um and um it's like each one of those signs or again a camera movement um or a focus thing or a way something is framed is like another dropper in the barrel of meaning that becomes cumulative cumulative over the course of the film yeah i mean i i because i know my over on my other show or even on the film and water podcast where it's you can you can analyze something to death and you sort of take all the yeah. take all the blood out of it by totally. but that that said there are things that i again i don't have this opportunity to talk to a writer director that much so i have to some stuff i'm just dying to ask you about it one other thing <laughs> without over overdoing this but the scene in the police precinct where miranda goes and she's going to do she's going to pick uh the you know supposedly the assailant out of the lineup the initial shot the establishing shot of her coming into the precinct we see this you know very large uh or way back cameras way back and we're seeing the whole uh part the whole building kind of of the uh the in the interior of the police precinct we see the, the door she comes in and we see the police standing there there is this uh curved ceiling above them and yes. it frames the yes. top of the shot and to me, it immediately looked like a proscenium on a stage. Yes. And I took yeah. that as, okay, she's about to give a performance here. That's how I took that because she's completely, you know, bullshitting now, pretending that she was there. I mean, the lie is on, is, is getting bigger to the point where she's actually at a police lineup pretending to, 
to recognize someone that she never saw, which is a gigantic lie. But that's how I took that shot of the proscenium stages that she is giving. This has gone from just her doing Paul a favor by calling 911, which initially doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But now it's it's really getting out of hand because you can't go to a police lineup and finger someone who you never saw. Am I, am I crazy or that? Am I reading too much into that? No, I, that's why that's why that location was chosen for those for that arch. Um, um, so, no, you're no, you're exactly right. And also, not only is she about to tell a gigantic lie, but the film at the same time is starting to basically look at what truth is. And an idea of like it's possible that an objective truth is another kind of fiction, because in a way, like her own set, her own sense of what's true starts to get assaulted, like piece by piece, as the as the film goes along. So she's lying, and she's also losing her connection to what 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 what, what is the truth in the first place. So um, this idea of like performance and. Um, yeah, proscenium is very much, yeah, on part of Okay. All right. Well, I'm, not, I'm good. I'm not crazy then. So, um, no, no there is. Very astute. Very astute. So nobody's like, ever said that, Rob. Nobody has ever, 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 ever picked up on that, ever. I'm okay. I'm really enjoying this conversation just because, yeah, I've never actually spoken to somebody who didn't work on the movie in such detail about the film before. And you are, you, you're picking up on all sorts of things. <laughs> well, again, it, and that, that is something else that we're going to talk about, about the reaction to this film and how people perceive on it. And we're going to get to that, but there was something else I wanted to ask about. Obviously we've talked about Hitchcock and I mean, the Hitchcock references could not be more overt. There's literally a scene where Miranda watches a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> uh, and of course, one of the characters is named after an actress in that movie. Yes, exactly. Uh, Margaret, Margaret Lockwood. Um, I mean, first of all, I want to ask Corey on a producing level, like, how do you get the rights to the Hitchcock movie? That said, that's that. That would seem like that would be kind of hard to do. I know that when it's a studio it a that owns the, the movie, it's a pain in the butt. I assume so because, like, it's like when it's the studio owns the movie, they can get the rights. But this is not a studio that you know, the people that made the, the companies that produced this film don't own any Hitchcock movies. So how? I mean, <laughs> what what was that like? Just give me the detail of how do you secure the rights to a Hitchcock movie? And let me ask Miranda: Was it? Obviously, it has to be that Hitchcock movie. It can't just be any Hitchcock movie. She thought she could be watching The Birds. It's got to no. be The Lady Vanishes. It's got to be The Lady Vanishes. You are nailing it and, it, and and this is like a producer's nightmare, right? When it feels <laughs> like it has to be The Lady Vanishes. We're like, can it, can it be something that's like in public domain? Like, maybe she's watching Night of the Living Dead or something. It has to be Lady Vanishes. <laughs> she's be watching- vanishing, get it? Get it, guys? She's vanishing? <laughs> Could no. she be watching It's a Wonderful Life? No, no, no. She can't. <laughs> it's really that thing as a producer from. where you're like, listen, I, I understand. Like, Camille, I understand. I get it. I'm just saying, like, this is really hard. So maybe we can film a take where we don't film that movie <laughs> on the television. That's right. We just do That's a great right. I, I remember having this conversation because we didn't know what we were going to be able to do at the time of filming exactly. And uh, so when you do this, you're not licensing like the whole movie, you're Mm -hmm. licensing the minutes, the seconds of the movie that you're using. We basically put in for request um, the exact spots that we wanted. We kind of cut it down to a really bare minimal beat. And, um, you know, it it costs a little bit of money, but it's, it's not a lot when you're just... Um, licensing a tiny piece of something to be used inside of something. And then you're licensing it though for 
domestic and international use. So, you know, you have to cover all your bases. You can't just have it that you've, you're allowed to show the United States, but whoever owns the international rights to the, the film, you know, needs to be informed too. Right. And okay. It, and it is the lady vanishes. It's not like you're asking for psycho or something like that. You know, I imagine some films are more expensive than others to license. It was still a deal. I remember it was one of those things that we, um, we talked a lot when we were shooting about this, the sentence, so you have to starve your turkeys and feed your eagles. That was like the way that we, we, we because we only had a little bit of money. And I was like, well, what's an eagle and what's a turkey? And I remember the producers being like, do we have to have this scene? Like, can we just cut it? Like, does she have to be watching The Lady Vanishes? And it was almost a turkey that it almost got cut because it was, it did cost money and it was a thing. And ultimately, oh my God, it, I'm it, so it glad this came up. Um, yeah, Camille totally like came up with the turkey and, and turkey and was turkey and pigeons? Eagle, turkeys and eagles. Sorry, turkey and eagles. We wanted it's that we had pigeons in the movie that turned into yes. a turkey. Uh, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what happened. We had, we had all these pigeons and they ultimately became turkeys and got cut out because we couldn't afford them. You need to get a pigeon wrangler and it's really difficult to wrangle a bunch of pigeons for a shot that Camille was trying yes. to get specific shot um in the middle of you know manhattan with pigeons that became a turkey yep so, uh, <laughs> how does yeah, john uh, woo and his doves do it how do they do it i don't understand they they, they, they have a lot more money than we did Rob. so okay all right so uh, as i was uh, talking about earlier i mean obviously we've already brought up david lynch and alfred hitchcock and i mentioned uh, roman polanski some of these you know huge names uh, what other movies uh, inspired this movie or inspired you like what movies did you both like, let me, can you let me start with you? Like, what movies did you like uh, when you were coming up that you maybe think, you know, led into coming up with something like this? I would say the, the really, I would say the primary, the primary thing was the New York trilogy. That was my primary mm-hmm. inspiration that was like a written or like um, viewed entity. But my, the primary film, um, I would say, is Don't Look Now, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. Oh, okay. That's what was one of my really favorite films as a young person and continues to be. And there were things about Don't Look Now, like, for instance, Miranda's. Um, one of the things I like really am so happy about with Never Here is um, the way her apartment is in a constant state of transition. And, like, all the, like, the way Sebastian, um, our amazing DP, shot, um, the, like, through the shot, like, all the, they weren't, they weren't, um, towels but like there were just these hanging drapes and just I just think he did such a great job with that and that came from a shot in Don't Look Now where um Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie come into the hotel lobby do you know what I'm, do, do, I don't know if you're, you're a Don't Look Now fan I have but, seen and the all the all the furniture in the hotel lobby is filled with are covered with sheets and I just remember feeling as an audience member like oh it's off season. It's that shining thing. It's like, Oh, the, the, the hotel on the off season, it's not really a safe place, you know? And I just mm. thought covering things with sheets just really does something to me as a spectator. Mm. And, um, so I brought that into never here. So I, yeah, I'd say that was, a, a, what was like probably the biggest cinematic influence and also the, the conversation, the, the Coppola movie. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, it's, that's good. That's funny. Oh, that's interesting. You mentioned the conversation because there's some, zoom shots in that movie that remind me some of the zoom shots in this movie i mean the yeah where where we where we pin i mean so much of this movie is handheld which again makes you feel like you're a bystander standing there watching these people talk but then you have that shot of you're peering over miranda's shoulder and all of a sudden you're zooming down and there's paul down on the street 
and you never even yeah. hear him. You never hear him leave. You never hear the door slam. Like all of a sudden he's just there, and it zooms down, and that that's very like the conversation where those shots of him, yeah, you know, Cindy Williams and her boyfriend in the park and stuff. So, okay, yeah, totally. Right. And the coat, the coat. I was inspired by Walter Murch's uh, editing mm-hmm. of the conversation, and I'm, I don't, I don't know if you guys know this. Probably you do. That Harry Call always has the same coat on, mm-hmm. so that when Coppola couldn't finish the film, because uh, they 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 had to stop, they couldn't get the whole film. Walter Murch had all this like footage, and he was able to complete basically make a. They did a little bit of reshooting, but basically he was able to complete the film by reordering it and he was able to do that because harry call always has the same coat so i was like miranda is always going to have the same coat because i knew there would be a bunch of scenes where her identity is disintegrating a little bit and i knew that in the edit that they what we wouldn't know where they would go so i was inspired by she just always had to have this blue coat (laughs) oh wow all right now Corey, what about you i mean what did you love as a kid like what what were the things that made you want to be like a movie producer Made me want to be a movie producer. The money, no. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I uh, I have a weird background when it comes to my my own inspirations, and and being a movie producer isn't exactly something I aspired to as much as it's just kind of something that that happened kind of naturally, a natural kind of progression into how do you keep pursuing the arts and make a career out of it into your adulthood and you know, this is, this is one way to do it where you're taking a little more control over a situation, which as artists, which I consider myself an artist, like we, it's very hard thing. You don't have control over your situation so much of the time. Um, making movies particularly, like you don't have control over your situation. So to be able to be the person um, who gets to help facilitate that is really exciting to me. And when I was a kid and growing up, um, you know, I'm a geek. I was I was watching more TV than movies when I was a kid. I was watching nonstop Star Trek and a lot of cartoons. Uh, and it was really my older sister who probably inspired me into kind of more uh, artful and tasteful filmmaking because she was like hmm. watching stuff like Eraserhead over and over and over wow. again. And then I became, you know, I became, I became very fascinated at a young age with like black and white film, um, Fellini. I watched a bunch of when I was little then, and I was very confused as to what I was watching. Um, so in horror movies, I'm a huge horror movie fan. Um, it's my favorite genre of film. It's my favorite thing to work on. It's just a lot of fun and never here. Uh, well, it was a great treat because it's like a real thriller. So one of the other things I, I wanted to uh, specifically ask you about, because again, I watched the movie a couple of times and that there's a certain point where um, it converts kind of from a thriller to something a little different where obviously we are no longer, Miranda is not a reliable, not that she is narrating the movie, but she's no longer a reliable narrator because clearly reality is not what we're expecting. I mean, there's the scene where, um, her assistant says, oh, when did you get here? And she's like, I've been here for three hours. And mm-hmm. she's like, well, what are you talking about? I, I came in, to, you must have gone to the bathroom because you weren't here. And she, I never, I never got out of my chair. And you're, and that's never resolved. And it mm-hmm. just, you know, they move on and you're like, wait, hold, yeah, one of them is wrong. One, mm-hmm. <laughs> these two people cannot both be right. And then like, I remembered like the bit with the, uh, when they go, when again, when she goes to the police lineup and the cop, sitting at the desk has a five on his mug 
And of course, that's the number of the person mm-hmm. that she fingers. And so there's all of these things going on where I'm like, okay, or the, the, the bartender that she knows, he just disappears suddenly for some mm-hmm. strange reason. So obviously halfway through the film, or maybe a little bit earlier than that, reality is cracking and we're not sure. The movie itself now has pushed us somewhere where we can't be sure of what's going on. And when I was looking up reviews of this film, uh, there was a, there was one review I found on uh, The Hollywood Reporter where they took the film sort of seriously. And when I, I, it's probably not even the right word to use seriously, but like compared to, I saw some reviews on IMDb, which were like very negative, but that doesn't matter because IMDb's comment board is like a, it's, it's like an insane asylum. And, but <laughs> the people, a lot of the people there, people don't like amb- ambiguity. They just right. don't like it. They don't like it in yeah. art. They don't like it anywhere. They want answers. That's why we have all these prequels now where they explain everything. Oh, mm-hmm. Michael Myers did this. It's like, oh, I don't care. He's just a killer. It's fine. I don't need to know that he had problems with his parents. You know, I don't need to know all that stuff. <laughs> and so it was, I, I was, I was appreciated that some reviewers took the film on its own terms, as opposed to someone who was like, I don't like ambiguity. So, okay, movie. And it's like, well, you're, if you're going into it with that sort of feeling, you're not never going like to like it. it. You're not going to yeah. like it. There's lots yeah. of movies. There's lots of things that I know I don't like. So I'm not really going to kind of bother to watch them because it's never going to, I'm never going to warm up to it. So mm-hmm. when the film came out, what was the general reaction from people? Because like I said, it's ambiguity is something that to a lot of people, they, they just don't like it. And the film starts in a more conventional, and I mean that in a good way, conventional kind of manner, that it is this Hitchcockian kind of thing where this one lie that seems relatively harmless, although Paul, Frank, he's full of shit that he can't call the cops because Mm -hmm. he's married. Like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Who cares? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But it starts in a certain way, and then it really unravels. And I can imagine that for maybe a lot of critics, they just, they, they weren't having it. Or what was the reaction? Well, funnily enough, I, I was I was very much worried about that, Rob. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, what are, what are people going to say? Um, the critical response was good, over, by and large. Was I mean, the New York Times was our one review that, like, just really that woman just really did not go for it. It was very sad that it happened to be the New York Times. Mm. But other than that, we had really our, our reviews were strong. Um, but the people on IMDb B were frustrated that it wasn't, there wasn't like, oh, it was the butler at the end. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and that's kind of what I was saying before, where, where for me personally, there's the story, there's the plot, and then there's the meaning. And um, I, I don't personally want to make a film that's just about Sally meets John and John goes to work and John gets killed. And then Sally did it. Like it, it, like it really has to be about some, for me personally, it has to be like an exploration of some kind of our human, our shared human experience. And often, and what I've so far been drawn to is like the idea of transition and movement. um, And the fact that we like to think of our lives as fixed, but really we're, we're always in motion and we're always in movement. And in this particular film that's explored through a lens of like a thriller, like that that's can be a very scary thing that in my documentary, it was much more uplifting. Um, I, I feel great about the critical response. I wasn't sure 
how critics were going to respond for that exact reason. And in general, they were really respectful. Um, and then some people on IMDb really, they wanted that, they wanted that it all sewn up. And that's not, that's not just not what this, that's not this movie. I would love to do a movie like that also, you know, like the, the, the can really sew up every, everything and also do this, um, you know, create this uh, human experience thing. But so far it's, it's actually tough to do both. I mean, another thing I noticed, too, is that the film, you know, kind of very much brazenly violates that act about introducing a gun and that you're going to have to fire it by the third act, which does not happen in this movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a gun, which, I, again, I thought it was the, the, the movie toying with you a little bit, because the minute a gun shows up, you're like, well, that's going to get fired at some point off. in the film. And it's like, no, it, it really doesn't. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't. it doesn't get fired. fired off well, it screen. goes off in the telling of it. Yeah, it, it, she, there is a telling of it that it goes off. Right. But I mean, it doesn't, it's not like the film ends not with, a guy, you know, again, for anybody who's going to watch the movie, I'm not giving anything too terribly away. I'm trying to be as vague as possible because I don't want to ruin this movie. Mm -hmm. I want people to, to, to see it. So um, one other thing uh, I do want to ask, and this is so minor, but I, again, I'm here. And I, I the reason I'm mentioning it is because when I watched the film with my fiance, this occurred to her and I said, well, I'll ask, I'll ask Camille about this. So hmm. when, what happens to, Miranda at the end again we're not going to say what happens to her but when when she makes the decision that she makes um mm -hmm. what happened to her dog what happened oh, to that, the dog people bring that up a lot <laughs> <laughs> there's a poor dog in the apartment all by itself like just fending for that made me that just so had the, this anxiety in my mind of this poor dog so funny. <laughs> um Karen would never let that happen right okay uh, right I mean yeah. right, but what well, right yes but you know there is a woman in her there is somebody in her apartment taking care of the dog Oh, that's she okay. Right. An, she doesn't leave an empty apartment, but you okay. know, it's a good, that's so funny. The dog thing really does. We've heard that over and over and over again. <laughs> dog. Okay. Well, fair well, enough. Camille, you should tell how it was uh, for you as a director working with a dog. That was really rough. It was really tough to get the dog to do. Um, dog does a lot of stuff. There's a lot of dog acting. That's what movie. we wanted to do. And actually one thing I think about a lot with that dog is, is, there was this um, scene that got cut, actually, that where Miranda starts to actually scream at the dog, where she starts saying, you're not my dog. You're not my dog. You're not my dog. And um, Mireille, I, I, when I look back on it, I'm like, duh. I mean, I'm a dog owner. I have a dog. I had a dog when we shot the same dog, you know. But, like, Mireille was like, I'm not going to scream at that poor animal. Because <laughs> I directed her to scream, you know, and so she you know, really screamed at the dog. And she's like, I'm not doing that. And, um, it, you know, in retrospect, and you know, in retrospect, I, I just, I'm, I'm amazed that I, I was so intent on getting a shot that I was like, it didn't even occur to me that, you know, that to not actually have her scream at the actual dog, that we could just have her scream and then cut to a different shot of the dog. Um, was that a dog actor or was it someone's yeah. friend? So, oh, it was. Okay. It was someone's friend. Yeah, he was an actor. Yeah. He was very, and, and very highly, very highly strong because he was, on purpose it was a very highly strung breed and they had kind of brought that those qualities out in him so that he could do the things that we were asking him to do like you know snap its jaw on cue and mm -hmm. behave behave in highly strong manners not chase a ball when she throws it you know she throws not, the ball yeah. and the dog just exactly. ignores it i don't know a dog exactly. that could do that most dogs are like ah, you know good doing my so. dog yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so, so it was interesting with the dog it was really it was really hard really time consuming 
Okay, yeah, I imagine so. So, yeah, I mean, I said it's it's a film that, uh, again, it's just a, a a viewer, and I didn't have any insight to it until this moment about the making of it. it it's a film that uh, del- delights in confounding your expectations. Uh, this this whole uh, again, I'm not going to give too much away, but there's this this character early on, this Arthur Anderton character, and in a lot of other thrillers that would become more of a thing because obviously mm-hmm. he's very mad at Miranda, but then it, it doesn't figure into it. So it's a film that mm-hmm. is trying to confound you a little bit and frustrate you in some ways. And, and your mileage mm-hmm. may vary out there. Uh, if you like that kind of movie, this is for you. And if that's the kind of thing you don't like that, well then yeah, you probably from the get go will not be terribly uh, happy with it. Cause it's just not a film that's going to, going to give you all these answers that you want. This is not kind of that kind of movie. So um, I do, I could keep on talking to you guys, but I, I do, you know, I won't let you go, but I, but I, I need, we need to wrap up here. And I just want to ask you, obviously um, this was not intended to be, I'm sure Sam Shepard's last film. Uh, I mean, he didn't intend to, like, he wasn't officially retiring with this, for this, with this film as some actors do. Looking back on it now, you managed to produce Corey and, and write and direct Camille, the final film of Sam Shepard which is, is yeah. significant. I mean, that's a, that's yeah. a, it's, he, it was a, again, in a legendary Hollywood career and, and a you know, playwriting career, a lot of amazing things. And you got to say, you know, you did the cinematic swings. And so do you ever think of the, I mean, I know the film is only a couple of years old, but do you look at that in some way as like, this was something extra on top of, you know, more than some other films that you've got to work on and that you got to sort of put your stamp on a on a career. And obviously it was unintentional, but nevertheless, that's the film you made. I would love to say like that it was, it, I, I think about it all the time. It's one of the great privileges of, you know, doing what I get to do. Mm-hmm. And that, that was like a dream come true to work with this man and to have him appear in, in the movie. I was so scared. Of, I was so intimidated by Sam Shepard. I never even spoke to him on set. I, I stood in the corner. I was quite uh, intimidated. I think I took a picture with him once and I was, <laughs> I was pretty scared to even do that. So it was just so cool to, to, to have him around and to, to work with him in a professional capacity. Um, I think about it all the time. I'm like, how did that happen? How did I get so fortunate and so lucky? Uh, it's like a real blessing. Yeah. What about you, Camille? Um, I feel humbled that our film was his last film. I feel like Corey said, like extremely privileged to, I mean, I, I, I can't, I mean, just, I just feel like Corey was saying, I think just, just extremely privileged to have worked with him at all. Um, in terms of being his last film, the, I guess what I feel good about is that, yeah, I feel, well, he, you know, he, he, he wanted to play, a lover. That's one of the reasons he um, was attracted to the piece early on. Like he liked the idea that he was, he was going to play a lover. And um, so I feel good that he got to play a lover, which is what he wanted. And I also feel good that I guess that he spent his life um, writing in some ways about identity and that that's what our film was about too. So it just feels like, there was some kind of synergy that he, his last film also ended up being um, something that he, that he, that thematically was in line with what he wrote himself about. Yeah. I, I feel the same way, Camille. I, I, am almost like, I don't want to like toot my own horn too much saying something like that, but I, I feel good about it. Um, 
you know, the plays that he wrote that inspired me when I was so young and the literature that he brought into the world in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and the connection he had to theater. Um, I feel like this, this was a cool movie for him to be part of, um, you know. I'm glad you mentioned, I'm sorry, I'm glad you mentioned, Camille, about the, that he, he is a, even though he was like uh, 73 when he did the film, I mean, he's playing probably a little younger, but he's obviously, you know, a much older man than Miranda, but he's still very vital. Obviously, you said you mentioned mm-hmm. that he has the love scene with Miranda, but also mm-hmm. he's just, he's a wheeler dealer. I mean, he's yeah. out there doing stuff. He is, and in a weird way, um, that was a, a one of the inspirations for this show in the first place, because when I started to, to look up uh, on IMDb, you know, the final films of a lot of my favorite actors, some of these legendary Hollywood careers you'd see, uh, I don't want to name names just yet because I'm not sure if I want to get to them mm-hmm. at this point, mm-hmm. but like you would see some of these, you know, huge Hollywood names and their last five films, they're playing grandpa, old grandpa, mm-hmm. funky yeah. grandpa. And you're like, really? Right. You know, like you really, this legendary actor who did this and this and was in this movie, he ends his career. That's all that was offered to him or her Mm -hmm. in the last five years was, you know, nutsy neighbor, you know, and it's it's Mm -hmm, totally that it's like, well, this person should have been offered something more interesting or better because it's more deserving of their talent. So I like to try and think about the legacy and how the final film that we're any given final film that we're talking about fits in as of a piece, if it does at all with Mm -hmm, the actor mm -hmm. and never hear doesn't really fit in Sam Shepard's career, but it fits, it fits in by not fitting in because none of his films fit in together. I mean, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. a random career by choice. And, you know, I mean, totally. he purposely picked weird thing, days of heaven, right? You know, black yeah. Hawk down, it's all over the place. And it was clearly someone who only did things because he really wanted to do them, not because he needed to for right. his own fame, for his own, uh, you know, his own ego, certainly not for the money. And so by the mm-hmm. fact that he did this, it says something about how he saw his career even if you look at it and say, boy, yeah, there's no through line here. It's like, yeah, it's because that's how Sam Shepard chose to manage his career. I, that's, that's right. I agree with all that, Rob. And, <laughs> and I think there was this element of vitality to yeah. the character. And, and Sam, yeah, he, he, he wasn't diagnosed yet. So he seemed very, um, he, he had all that vitality to still to share. So, um, and he did. So, all right. Well, I said we're going to leave it here. I get. I can talk to you, you two, forever because I'm just so fascinated how movies get made. Ever since I was a kid, I've always been just. I, I just love to know as much as I love the the movie itself. I love to know the behind the scenes. That's always been just as fascinating to me. So it's just been it's just been marvelous getting to talk to you two Aww. about this movie. So thank you both very much for doing this. I, I appreciate it. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, and it's been marvelous to spend this time with the two of you. And let's do it again. Absolutely. So again, thank you, Camille, Rob. I, I had a great time doing this. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, again, thank you, Rob. All right. Well, thank you both very much. I really appreciate it. You wrote, do you guys want to talk about what you're working on? I, I have a horror film that I'm writing and, um, and developing, um, and a, a film about ALS actually that I hope to shoot in the next few months. A man who has ALS, um, that'll be played by Tobias Menzies from the crown. So those are my two projects that I'm working on. I'm also, like Corey said, a big horror fan. So, um, yeah. All right, wonderful. Well, again, thank you, everybody, for listening. Of course, if you want to follow the show, all our episodes are on our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Stitcher. And you can follow the show over on Twitter at FadeOutPod. And then finally, 
If you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So if you love Fade Out and you want to support this show, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. So thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for the next episode. But until then, we've reached the end of the script, so it's time to fade out.